Father, we praise you for this morning and for the opportunity for us to come and to eat from the bread of life and to drink from the water of life, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Yes, we have sung songs of worship and we've prayed prayers of worship and we've read portions of your word to excite our hearts to worship. But now, Father, even now, as we listen to your word read and explained, I pray that it would inspire within us a heart for worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is he that we have come to hear from. And Lord, I know how it is in the lives of our people and in my own life. And I need from time to time, at least once a week, for someone to remind us how great you are and how glorious And to remind me that the most wonderful thing in life is fellowship with you and serving you in ways that bring you glory. Oh, Father, help us this morning. Change us. Send your spirit to move us and make us more like Christ because we've been together here in this place. And use your word, Father, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We're still in 1 Corinthians, and will be for some time. We are this morning starting chapter 9. We've been learning from the Word of God what it means to exercise Christian liberty. What is Christian liberty? How is it to be exercised? What are its limits? These are questions that sooner or later every believer has to ask and to answer. And isn't it kind of the sovereign God of the universe to go out of his way, as it were, to give us texts like this that explain for us how he wants us to respond to these kind of gray area issues in our lives rather than putting us in a position where we have to grope around in the darkness trying to find our way. I find these three chapters in 1 Corinthians to be refreshingly helpful in my walk with the Lord. I mean, it's... It's just so clarifying to see God's perspective on gray area issues spelled out so succinctly and so precisely. And so as we pick up today in chapter 9, we need to be reminded that Paul is still addressing the issue of Christian liberty that he began back at the beginning of chapter 8. And we're going to need to keep that focus because as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's going to sound like Paul has somehow wandered off into a defense of his apostleship. And indeed, that is exactly what he will do. But his reason for doing that is to communicate to us something about what we need to know regarding Christian freedom or Christian liberty. And so let's take a few minutes to read the text together. And stand with me, and we will read 1 Corinthians 9. And we're going to read verses 1 through 23. I told the the first service this morning, in my quiet time, I've been... uh, reading the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is really where we get this tradition of standing during the reading of God's word. Because when the people of Israel, some of them came back to Jerusalem after having been held captive in Babylon for 70 years, the temple was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, the city was decimated, and and group by group they were going back to rebuild the temple, reestablish its walls, and reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And one critical moment happened in the book of Deuteronomy. It actually lasted for several days when Nehemiah and the priest scribe Ezra got together. They called all the people together in the center of Jerusalem. They built a platform and even a pulpit. It's the first time in the Bible where a pulpit is mentioned being used. And 
uh, all the prophet, all the, 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 uh, the priest Ezra, all, all that he did was stand before the people and read God's word. And whenever he would read God's word, the people would stand out of respect for God and his message and listen and weep as they heard the law of God read because they realized how far they had wandered from the truth of God's word. And so that's why we stand. And now you know. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And just follow along with me. We won't try to read this out loud together this morning. There's just so much. So follow along with me as you can. I'm reading from the New American Standard. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law of God also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do not we the more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat of the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it would be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? Simply this. And when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all yet men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I become a Jew so that I will win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What an amazing scripture. You can be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Paul is teaching us about the limits and the usages of Christian freedom, Christian liberty. And the first thing that we need to see here is that as, the, as an apostle, Paul had certain liberties that were perfectly right for him to demand, perfectly right for him to exercise. And so if you're taking notes, there's only two points here. Point number one is this, Paul's freedom of apostleship. Paul is revealing to us the freedom of apostleship. Freedom, liberty. In fact, the word here that's repeated again and again is right. Do I not have the right? The word in Greek is actually exousia, which means authority. Do I not have the authority to do this or that? Now, it's important that we remind ourselves about the last words of chapter 8, because in order for us to really understand what the apostle intends to communicate, we need to remember the context, because context is king. Good, I hope you're learning that. And so the very last sentence, the last phrase of chapter 8 is this. This is how Paul concludes his first run at dealing with the issue of Christian liberty. He says, in conclusion, verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That, beloved, is radical Christianity. It is not the exercise of the freedoms, but the restraining of freedom out of love for who? Out of love for the weaker brother or sister in the church. Weaker brother or sister being that person who might see me exercising my freedom and might be tempted to follow my example in spite of their convictions of their conscience. In relationships to brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom will and some of whom will not be offended by my use of certain Christian freedoms relative to issues that are in the gray area. Now understand, I need to just throw out this caveat once again. Paul is not talking about the moral law. Thou shalt not, thou shalt. Those things are still in place. All of the moral law. We're talking about gray areas. How should I dress? What can I eat? Where can I go for entertainment? All of these things. How do I exercise? What do I wear? Uh, All of these things that really the scriptures don't define for us. And frankly, different cultures, they're going to be different. In different times, they're going to be different. And so how do we bring the word of God to bear on those issues in the gray areas? In, In the aspect of exercising our liberty in Christ. But notice what he says here in verse 1 of chapter 9. He asks a series of questions. Am I not free? Look at verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now what's that about? Well, if you were going to be a true apostle, you had to visually, with your eyes, not in a vision, but physically see the Lord Jesus Christ. That Paul did on the road to Damascus. It was one of the qualifying um, things that had to happen in a person's life in order for him to be qualified as an apostle. Have I not seen our Lord? Everybody knew he had. 
Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, look at verse one. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now what's that about? Well, if you were going to be a true apostle, you had to visually, with your eyes, not in a vision, but physically see the Lord Jesus Christ. That Paul did on the road to Damascus. It was one of the qualifying um, things that had to happen in a person's life in order for him to be qualified as an apostle. Have I not seen our Lord? Everybody knew he had. Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, look, there shouldn't be any question in your mind that I am a true apostle. I mean, I've seen the Lord. You know that. You know the story about the Damascus Road and me going to persecute the church and, and have someone else killed or thrown in jail. And on my way, the Lord appeared to me and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. And then the blindness. And then Ananias coming and giving him his sight back. Everybody knew the story. That this Pharisee of Pharisees, this persecutor of the church, is now claiming to be a Christian and a preacher. And the church was scared of this guy. His reputation spread all over the place. And it caused people to be afraid of him. They knew. They knew. And not only that, but then Paul went years later, was sent out by the church of Antioch. Remember that with Barnabas? And they went all over the Gentile world, establishing churches. And one of those churches was in Corinth. It was the church of Corinth. That's the, the very people that he's writing this letter to. He's answering their questions. And he's saying, listen, are you not the seal of my apostleship? As an apostle, I was sent. That's what apostle means, a sent one. I was sent with the message of the cross, and I brought it to you. The very fact that you exist as a church is a seal. It's a testimony. It is a, um, a, a seal with something that was put on a document to establish its authenticity. And he's saying, the very fact that you exist as a result of my ministry is the seal of my apostleship. Other people may question my apostleship, but not you. Not you. Paul's simply saying the reality that I am a true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is a well-established fact. In, view, in, in verse 3, then, he explains that being one of the apostles of the Lord has secured for him certain rights, certain exousia, certain uh, points of authority where he could say, this is mine, I can do this. Even if other people can't, I can do this. And so what were those things? Number, verse 4, I have a right to eat and drink. What's that mean? Look, I understand the whole thing about food sacrificed to idols. Demon is nothing. I understand that. If it's sacrificed to an idol, it's just being laid before a hunk of wood or a hunk of stone. Who cares? I understand that. I have the right to eat and drink. I have liberty in Christ. Verse 5, I have the right to get married. An apostle? Yep, apostle. In fact, all the other apostles, most of them at least, maybe not John, and the brothers of Jesus. Now, there's a loaded statement. Um, if if uh, you're a, a member of the Roman Catholic Church and you're listening to my voice right now, you've got to wrestle with that verse a little bit. And the brothers of Jesus, even Peter, that's Cephas, they've all exercised their freedom to marry. Their freedom to marry. Don't I have the right to, to get married? I have a right to get paid for my ministry of the gospel, verse 6. You see that? 
in verse 6 where he says, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right or, or not have a right to refrain from working? In other words, to be paid for our ministry of the gospel. And now Paul's going to really delve into that statement. The right that gospel ministers have to be paid. Now watch this. This third one is where he camps out. He drives the point home, offering several examples that the minister of the gospel should earn his living from the gospel. And this is what he says. First of all, this is established by common practice. Look at verse 7. Soldiers don't pay their own way in military service. I mean, think about it. They don't go out and fight the bad guys in the day and work at Walmart at night. And the military pays them. And that's right. It's an established practice. Everybody does that. Every nation does that. Verse 7 again. A vine dresser eats the fruit of, the, of his labor. I mean, he's not out there taking care of the vine and, and never snatches a grape, never drinks the wine, never enjoys, you know, cutting up grapes and putting it in his, his you know, chicken salad or whatever. Uh, verse 7 again. Shepherds drink the milk of their flock. In fact, even to this day, shepherds in the East are often paid by, giving a portion, by getting a portion of the milk of the flock that they're tending. And not only that, but this whole idea of ministers of the gospel being paid for their service is even established by the Old Testament law. Look at what he argues, verse 8. By law, the ox is permitted to eat as it threshes the grain, verse 9. Verse 10, the plow plowman plows in hope. Verse 10 again, the thresher thrashes in hope. Verse 13, the priests in the temple are paid for their labor. And let me stop for a minute there. In case you don't know how the Old Testament system worked, I think it's Deuteronomy 24, almost the entire chapter, it deals with how are the priests, the Levites, the singers, the musicians, all of these people, certain families that God had designated who would be the primary ministers in the temple. How would their needs be met? You know how their needs were met? People brought sacrifices all the time. And guess what happened to the sacrifice? If you brought a lamb or a goat or a heifer or whatever, they'd slaughter it and drain its blood. They'd cut it open, clean it. They would take the kidneys, part of the entrails, and the fat around the kidneys, and they'd throw it on the fire, and it would burn. It would just, be, it'd just go up in smoke. And the Lord said, oh, it's a sweet aroma to my nostrils. I love the smell of a holy sacrifice. You ever ask yourself, what did they do with the rest of that meat? You know what they did? They roasted it. They barbecued that thing. Uh, they slow cooked it, you know, with a little of a, um, a masterpiece, put a little masterpiece on there, you know. And, uh, and then where would it go? They'd give it to the priests. That's how they would eat. You know, a lot of the sacrifices, most of the sacrifices were not burnt offerings. They were wave offerings, or they were heave offerings. You know what those were? They would bring certain things like uh, cakes made out of uh, corn or other kinds of meal, maybe flour, and various food items. Uh, it, we, we know that the, the Pharisees, Jesus says, you are so specific and so careful to tithe on your mint and your dill, the spices. People would bring a tenth of everything that they harvested out of their fields, no matter what it was. And they would bring it to the temple. 
and the priests would take it and they would hold it up to God and they'd say, God, we offer this to you from a pure heart, wanting to worship you and you alone. And then what would happen with those spices or those cakes or whatever it was? They'd, they'd send it to the kitchen and it would be prepared for the priests. That's how they made their living. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is arguing here. Don't you realize that everybody who works in the temple gets paid for their service? Nobody loses out. Nobody has to do that and have a job on the side. And then verse 14, even the Lord Jesus himself taught that those, listen, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. And then he concludes, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much to reap material things from you? We sowed spiritual things. It's right for us to reap material things. I have the right to be paid. In other words, shouldn't we too be paid for this ministry? Verse 12 uh, even indicates that the church in Corinth had, had a verifiable history of paying those who ministered there. And perhaps Apollos probably was paid. We think that Peter ministered right there in the church of Corinth as well, and he was probably paid for his ministry. And Paul is saying, I planted this church. I've been serving you for years. Don't I have the right to be paid? Now, what verse are we on? Now, verse, we're up to verse, what, 14? 14, that's half the chapter. It's half the chapter. And what's he saying? He's saying, ministers of the gospel have a right to be paid. Now, by way of application, I mean, if you had to stand up here as the preacher and preach this message, <laughs> you know, what would you do with this? Um, my wife, Chris, was asking me earlier in the week, so what's your sermon on this week? And I said, uh, Sermons on seven reasons why you should pay your pastor well. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 really. And I said, no, no, really. <laughs> That's what the text says. And she said, listen, I know you need to do the expository thing and everything, but do you mind if I go visit Christ Chapel or something this week? <laughs> I said, no, it really is what it says. I have to, have to preach this text. And she said, okay. But would you just do me one favor? Don't make it a four-part series. <laughs> this is awkward. We need somebody else to come preach this. But here's the thing. Um, this would be a, um, in a lot of churches, this is a, this is a message that needs to be preached. Um, a lot of churches don't take care of their pastors. <clears throat> and especially church planters who are going into a new field of service, they ought to have a church behind them or churches behind them, just totally freeing them up because it's hard. It's a hard work that they're called to do. And they don't want to go out trying to reach unbelievers and getting money from the people they're trying to lead to Christ. It's exactly what Paul is saying. And so for many churches, this is a relevant message that needs to preach be preached directly to them. Pay your pastor, and if he's got a wife, then pay him more. Make sure that their needs are being met. But you know what? While that message may need to be preached to a lot of service, a lot of churches, that's not so here at Calvary Bible Church. And I know I'm speaking not only for myself, but for Brent and Charlie as well when I say, thank you, Calvary Bible Church, for being so generous to us and being so careful to meet the needs of your pastors. Your financial support of us over the years have relieved us of so many of the worries that other pastors have to deal with in addition to all of the, the issues of the church. 
we collectively praise God for you. You are easy to lead. And on top of being spiritually easy to lead, you have given us the additional privileges of of being freed from a lot of the financial strain and pressure that comes in a lot of ministries where the preachers are not paid enough to live on. That's not true here. And so thank you. We praise God for you. More than that, that's not really Paul's main point here. That's not where he's going. This chapter doesn't end on this note. This is not Paul's primary point. Remember, he's teaching on Christian liberty. He's saying, as an apostle, I have many rights. And one of those is, I have the right to be paid. I have the right to eat and drink, verse 4. I have the right to get married, verse 5. I have the right to get paid for my ministry, verse 6. Nevertheless, look at verse 12. We did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. We have a right to all of these things, but we did not use this right. We endure all things. What does that mean? It means, as Paul's going to say here in just a minute, what that means is I endure um, having to work with my hands to provide for my own needs, and it's hard. But I've chosen to do it this way. This is not the way the Lord has prescribed, but for my ministry, Paul's saying, this is the best way. This is the best way. I've got to do it this way. Again, verse 15, he says, but I have used none of these things and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. In other words, I'm not asking you to start paying me now. I'm not complaining about the fact that you're not helping me. To the contrary, he says, I would rather die than to risk people thinking that I'm in the ministry for the money. The very people I'm trying to reach with the gospel, shall I ask them to pay me so I can convince them to come to Jesus? And that's why in verse 18 he says, I offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right to the gospel. By the way, this is a key text for us when people call the church and they ask ask for counsel. A lot of times it's marriage counsel. Most of the time it's marriage counsel, but it's counsel for a variety of things. Sometimes it's tragedy. How do I respond to this in a manner that's honoring to the Lord? Sometimes it's children conflict issues or whatever. And so our ladies, when someone calls, we kind of have a script that they go through to make sure they cover all the bases. And sooner or later, comes the question comes down the pike, how much is this going to cost? And our ladies just put a smile on their voice and they say, oh, it's not going to cost you anything. It's free. And then they ask, we come again? How is, how is that possible? And their response is this. The people who do our counseling primarily are our pastors. And the church takes care of them in terms of their ministry of the word of God. They're being paid for that. And biblical counseling is just another form of ministry of the word of God. You don't have to worry about paying. We do not charge for the ministry of the word We don't ever charge for the ministry of the word. We don't charge worship. You don't have to pay a fee to come to worship service. In fact, to the contrary, oftentimes we pay for the privilege of preaching. To Tajikistan, I'll spend most of my time in Tajikistan. 
And guess who's paying for that? We are. And you know how that, you know, you know what happens when we get over there? We're ministering to Muslim people and to Christian people living in Muslim lands. And the unbelievers find out that we're here. Who paid for that? Oh, they did. And they come to us and they ask. We don't understand. Why would you pay all the money it takes to come over here and you get what out of this? Nothing? Explain that to us. To which we then have the freedom to respond. The reason we're here is because the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ compels us to go to the nations and present the gospel of Jesus Christ. We just want the privilege of telling you about him, and that's worth paying a lot of money for. Won't you listen? And they're baffled. I'm telling you what. When we were in that little school uh, on that mountain in the, um, uh, what's the name of that mountain range? The Himalayas. When we were in the Himalayas and went to that little school, and that's one of the questions that the director of the school asked. Why are you guys here? Why would you do this for us? And then you remember we, we bought the school children all the books they needed for that year? I mean, that was out of our own pocket. Why, why would you do that? Because we want to show you what Jesus is like. He gave everything for you. And so it makes sense that we could give a little bit for you. Paul said, I am not going to have anybody take away from me the joy of ministering the word of God for free. And I'll tell you what, it's a powerful thing in counseling. People just can't get over it. You know, I find out people have gone to counselors and they're in big time debt. And I just say, I'm so sorry. So sorry. It was unnecessary. There are places in this community where you can come to churches that will counsel you with the power of the word of God and your life will be so much more changed than what it was by getting psychology. Did Paul have rights? Sure he did. In fact, as an apostle, one might say that he had more rights and privileges than your average Christian in any church. He had freedom. He had liberty. He had privilege. But listen, he didn't flaunt his freedoms. He didn't flaunt his freedom. That's what he was talking about in chapter 8, right? I'm not going to flaunt my freedom. My concern is not indulging myself. My, 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 my passion is to serve you. And so if exercising my freedom will help me minister to you, then I'll exercise my freedom. If exercising my freedom hinders you as a believer in Christ, then I'll restrain my freedom. And now he's talking about unbelievers, and he's saying the same thing. If exercising my freedom in Christ helps me get the gospel to you, then I'm exercising. If exercising my freedom prohibits me or restrains my ability to communicate the gospel, then I'm restraining them. This is the Christian ethic. And somebody will ask, well, what's the point of having freedoms if you're not going to exercise them? But... That kind of question misses the point entirely. Paul did indeed exercise his liberty in Christ. In fact, he used his freedom to the fullest in ways that we self-centered, prosperity-driven, psychologically fragile Americans have little understanding of. Look at verses 19 through 25. 
For though I am free, notice the correlation between verse 19 and verse 1. Verse 1 says, am I not free? Verse 19, for though I am free from all men, listen, I have made myself a what? Doulos, slave to all, that I may win more. I've made myself a slave. Listen to me now, beloved. The price that Jesus paid on the cross purchased our freedom. And you know what that freedom is? You have the freedom to be a slave to all men. He purchased for you the right to, be, to exercise your freedom to be a slave to all men. We exist Say it with me, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here as a church. And we couldn't do that without blood-bought freedom and liberty in Christ. It's a freedom to be a slave to all men. It is therefore freedom and a privilege to be an apostle for the Apostle Paul. Is it? Yes, it's a, it's a privilege. But Paul believed the more precious freedom was the freedom to love all men by serving all men in order that some of them would be led to Christ. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 8, verse 1, where this whole discussion of Christian liberty begins? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, that's that's food sacrificed to idols. We know that all have knowledge. Now, here's the thing. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, and yet has not, uh, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Listen, your, your theology can be right. But if your theology doesn't lead you to sacrificial love, something is wrong with your theology. Something is wrong with your heart. Even if your theology is correct, something is desperately wrong. There's a disconnect. You know, you plug the light in to the power plug and the light doesn't come on. There's a short somewhere and it happens all the time in the church. We get our theology right, but it doesn't lead us to love. There's a short circuit. There's a wire loose somewhere. The question is, does that theology lead you to sacrificial love? If it doesn't, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And that's the very thing he's dealing with in the Corinthians' lives. We have the freedom of apostleship, sure. The freedom of apostleship, that was point one. Point two, we also have the freedom of servitude. <laughs> the freedom of servitude. Paul now addresses the kind of freedom that he exercised with three distinct groups of people, which pretty much, pretty much make up everybody. The first group were those whom he called those who were under the law. These are Jewish people like himself who grew up under the restrictions and ceremonies of the Old Testament law. Look at what he says, verse 20. To the Jews, I became a Jew so as so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, same group as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under 
the law. Before Christ, listen, before Christ, God's people lived under very restrictive laws relative to how they can and cannot interact with non-Jewish people. Uh, There were also many ceremonial laws that restricted where they could go and what they could eat and where they could work and what they could wear. The Old Testament ceremonial law said, don't eat pork. Don't wear clothing with certain mixtures of fiber. Don't work on Saturday. Don't touch this. Don't handle that. Don't marry her. Don't work here. Do you see, beloved, if Christ had not set us free from the restrictions of the law, we're not speaking about moral law here, we're speaking about the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. If Christ had not nailed those things to the cross, the gospel wouldn't have gone very far. It wouldn't have got very far past Jerusalem, if at all. In fact, if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul, it wouldn't have gone very far in the Apostle's lifetime because the Apostles, the 11 who were still in Jerusalem, really had a hard time letting go of the old ceremonial law. They really were not thrilled about the gospel going to the Gentiles. Not even after Pentecost. You see, the cross of Christ sent the apostles free to take the gospel to the nations, but they were reluctant to exercise their freedom. The apostles were reluctant to exercise their freedom. And so Jesus rises from the dead at the end of the four gospels. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is alive from the dead, and he rises, he goes back to heaven, he ascends back to heaven. In chapter 2, what happens? Pentecost, right? Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is born. Jesus had already said the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into where? All the world, all nations. And he even told them, starting in Jerusalem, and then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But you know what? The apostles were reluctant to go. Even after Pentecost, where do you find them? Jerusalem. What about chapter 3? Jerusalem. Chapter 4? Jerusalem. Chapter 5? Jerusalem. Chapter 6, 7, 8, 9? Jerusalem. 10, 11, 12? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 13, 14, 15, there's only 28 chapters. Chapter 15, guess where they are? In Jerusalem. Guess who's going to the nations? Paul. He's the only one. It's really interesting to see this in the text, um, that they were so reluctant And there's two instances where the Apostle Peter really demonstrates that. You remember in Acts chapter 7, 7 heaven. Something comes down out of heaven. You remember that? It's the sheet that's full of unclean animals that Jews are not allowed to eat. Peter being the leader of the disciples, or at least the spokesman of the disciples. The sheet comes down in his vision to him. He's he's up on the roof taking a nap, probably hiding from, I don't know, his mother-in-law or something wants him to fix something, I guess. Um, He's up there and he takes a nap, and he has this vision, and the Lord sends this sheet down, if you can imagine that, and it's full. Why do they put animals in a sheet? I haven't figured out yet, but uh, all of these um, 
unclean animals, and the Lord says, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter respond? Not so, Lord. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. This is a test, and I'm going to pass it. I'm not going to eat that, because your law forbids it. And how did the Lord respond in the vision? What I have declared to be clean, do not say is unclean. And Peter's like, what? Okay, let's do it again. The sheet comes down the second time. Unclean animals, kill, eat, not so, Lord. What I have said is clean, don't say is unclean. Sheet goes back up to heaven. Peter still doesn't get it. The sheet comes back down again, three times. Kill, eat, not so, Lord. Yes, so. No way. Way. (laughs) Do it. And then he thinks, okay, I know he's trying to tell me something. (laughs) You know, some of us are pretty thick. And then, and then the Holy Spirit helps him out. There's a knock on the door. Guess who it is? A Gentile slave of Cornelius who says, my master Cornelius has sent me because he's had an, a vision. An angel appeared to him and said, go to Joppa and find Peter on the roof of the house. And here you are on the roof of the house. And would you come to Cornelius' house because the angel says you have a message for us. Peter suddenly understands. Oh, the Lord wants me to go to communicate the gospel to Gentiles. I say this couldn't happen. And almost as if saying, listen, don't blame me, guys. Blame God. I know they're Gentiles, but God's doing this. And so, in the meantime, Paul is out there planning. He's in the church of Antioch. He's in the church of Jerusalem. And he tells the apostles, guys, I I have something to tell you. Um, The Holy Spirit's going to the Gentiles. And they say, no way. And he says, way. (laughs) How do you know? Tongues, um, fire, miraculous signs, whatever. There's no doubt in my mind. It's almost, he's almost being apologetic. Listen, who is I? I mean, God did it. Who was I to say this couldn't happen? And almost as if saying, listen, don't blame me, guys. Blame God. I know they're Gentiles, but God's doing this. And so, in the meantime, Paul is out there planning. He's in the church of Antioch. He's in the church of Antioch. And they're Gentiles. And, and the Gentiles are coming to Christ, coming to Christ, coming to Christ. And the apostles say, Peter, go check that out. You've had interaction with Gentiles. None of us want to go in their houses. Go. <laughs> so they go to, he goes to the church of Antioch. And guess what? He's already seen it. And now here's a church, a Gentile church. And he's going, wow, this is amazing. But he's there. Him and Paul and Barnabas are there. And they're enjoying fellowship in this mixed group. We're Jews. You're Gentiles. This is kumbaya. We love this. We're eating pork for the first time in our lives, and it really is the other white meat. (laughs) This is good. And then something happens. James sends a couple of James sends a couple of the other Jews from Jerusalem up there. And when they arrive, guess what Peter does? I didn't touch that pork. (laughs) And he holds himself aloof. He backs away. I'm not sitting with those people. Look, see, I'm sitting with you. Those are Gentiles. We're Jews. They're lesser, we're better. And you know what Paul did? Galatians chapter one, read it yourself. 
For this reason, I withstood Peter to the face publicly and called him out. Why? Because he was causing confusion about the gospel by his behavior. Don't you understand, Peter, that Christ through his cross has set you free to minister to the Gentiles? You don't have to hold yourself aloof anymore. You can eat this food. You can sing the songs. You can dress like them. And you can fellowship with them in Christ. You are free. And when you refuse to exercise your liberty among the Gentiles, you are confusing them about the gospel. I rebuke you. I rebuke you. That's what happened. I have no idea where I am in my notes. <laughs> Do you see, beloved, if Christ had not set his people free, the gospel would have gone nowhere because there were laws against interacting with Gentiles. You can't go into their house. You can't eat their food. Paul is saying, but now in Christ, I have a liberty and I am going to exercise my liberty to the fullest. So now I, the apostle Paul, who once was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin with the most privileges of anybody. Now I'm a Christian, and I am not bound by all those laws. However, when I go back to Jerusalem, verse 20, to the Jews, I become a Jew. Those without the law, verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Anamas. A means no. Namas is law. Those who are without law. And we need to be really careful here that we don't hear Paul saying, I'm, I'm for antinomianism. And those of you who are theologically minded know what I'm talking about. There are people who say, look, Acts chapter 21, I can observe Jewish feasts and wear Jewish clothing and the little, you know, thing on the head, the yarmulke or whatever that's called. And I can enjoy the company of other Jews, believing and unbelieving, and love them like Christ loved me. In fact, this is exactly what I will do if it wins me a hearing for the gospel. But because of his liberty in Christ, he was also free to love and to minister to a second group of people. Verse 21, those without the law. Those without the law, verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Anamas, ah means no, namas is law, those who are without law. We need to be really careful here that we don't hear Paul saying, I'm, I'm for antinomianism. And those of you who are theologically minded know what I'm talking about. There are people who say, look, just, look, there aren't any constraints. I can live however I want to live. Grace covers it all. And Paul would say, that's not what I'm saying. Notice very carefully what he's saying. To those who are without law as without law, 
though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. I have a law. I have a law that governs my life. It's the law of Christ. It's everything that God in Christ showed me and taught me through his word. All of the moral law and anything else that was preached and taught in the New Testament, all of that is true of me. It's binding upon me. The law of Christ kind of summarizes everything that God revealed to us in terms of his requirements of our lives as Christians in the New Testament era, which is now. There are some things that I can't do. I'm not allowed to commit any immorality. If I live in immorality, the New Testament will say, you're probably not even a child of God. I mean, you just go through the list of the New Testament, and Paul says, I... As I forewarned you, I now warn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, people who live like that go to hell. And Paul says, I'm ministering to those who are without law as one who is without ceremonial law, but I'm still bound by the law of Christ. It's just within that law, I have a breadth of freedom that I never knew as a Jew, under the old ceremonial law. When I'm with Gentiles, I have no problem entering their homes, no problem eating pork, dressing like they dress, befriending them, enjoying the blessings of this life with them. God has given me all things to enjoy in this life. I think of men like Hudson Taylor, who applied this truth when he went to China and he took all kinds of grief for it. Because you know what he did? He did something really strange. At least at the time, it was really strange. He got to China, and he saw the example of another brother who uh, had been in China a lot longer than him. He was the only one who would dress Chinese. But uh, Hudson Taylor was English, and the Englishmen all wore black. Um, they all wore kind of the same formalized British clothing, but here's what would happen. When the unbelievers, the pagans in China, would see one of those guys walking in black coming down the street, you know what they called them? Black devils. Not because they were immoral, but because they had a... a they, they, so many of those missionaries were so insensitive to the people they were trying to reach. And so Hudson Taylor said, you know what? I'm going to become all things to all men. I'm going to eat their food. I'm going to dress like them. And the people who, who took a boat out there to work in, under his ministry said it was the strangest thing to come up in the boat, come off the dock, and see this little guy in a rickshaw coming at us with his big hat. We had no idea he was an Englishman. He looked so Chinese until he tipped his hat up and we could see it was Mr. Taylor. That opened the door to the gospel because he ranked himself under the people he was trying to reach. Everyone else was a black devil. Paul's saying, that's what I do. And then there was a third group. There was those under the law, those without law, and then a third group he calls, verse 22, to the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. Now we know that um, the weak in conscience is what he's talking about in chapter 8. These are brothers in Christ who are weak in conscience in chapter 8. 
who may be tempted by your example to do what you do in violation of their own conscience and thus sin against the Lord, because that which is not done in faith is sin, Romans 14 says. And so a hermeneutical principle here is if you're trying to interpret a word like I was this week, who are the weak? Who are the weak? Well, you go to the closest other usage of that word to your text, and what do you get? Well, you get chapter 8, the weak, the weak brother. But here's the problem with that interpretation. Whoever the weak are in chapter 9, Paul's trying to win them to Christ. These are unsaved people. So this is not a weaker brother with a weak conscience who's going to be tempted to follow you and your behavior and so violate his own conscience. This is a different group of people, so who are they? Um, The weak, then, are those who comprise the lower levels of society in that day. These are the working class people who have to hold a job or serve a master to make ends meet. And frankly, I think one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas both chose to pay their own way and to make tents, they were tent makers, right? They were artisans. They were workers with their hands. They did manual labor. The reason they chose to do that rather than be this elevated teacher whose all of his needs were paid for by other people was so that he could be in the lives and rubbing shoulders with the lower class, the working class. And by the way, most of the church would be made up with such people. Most of the people would not be from the higher echelons of society. They would not be the educated. They would not be the wise. They would not be the philosophically astute. These would be the lower class people who were working out, eking out a living every day. And we see this. God loves those people. And most of the church is made up of those people. Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. Come on, I want to hear pages. Chapter 1, you've got to see this for yourself. Don't take my word for it. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. And just a sampling here, there's other verses that lead to this conclusion as well, but I'll pick two for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. doesn't warm your heart. Uh, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the what? The weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The base things and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. God is choosing certain people, not because of their strength and wisdom, but because their weakness. These are people who, like in the Sermon on the Mount, these are people who view themselves as spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer society. They have nothing to offer God. They know the only thing I have to offer you, God, is my sin. God says, that's all I want. Turn the page, chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. This is sarcasm. This is holy sarcasm. I told you I love that use of sarcasm in the Bible. That sarcasm's in my spiritual gift, I think. Um, You are, but you are prudent. We are, what's the next word? Weak. But you are strong, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. You see that whole idea of being without honor? Listen, we're in the lower echelons of society. We're the scum of the earth, he'll say elsewhere. We're nobodies, you're somebody. You think so highly of yourself. But we apostles, we're nothing. 
Paul's saying, I'm not in the least bit hesitant to exercise my freedom. Christ has set me free to make myself a slave of all men. I am free to serve people in Jerusalem, but I am also free to serve people in Antioch and Cyprus and Salamis and Patmos and Iconium and Colossae and Miletus and Ephesus and Smyrna and Troas and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and even Corinth. He was even free to go to Rome. And from there, he fully intended to go on to Spain. And along the way, he would love and he would serve Greek philosophers, Jewish rabbis, Roman soldiers, and a host of working class men, women, and slaves without distinction. He had the freedom Freedom to become a slave of all men. To love them. To win a hearing for the gospel. So that of all of those whom he loved and served and spoke the gospel, some of them, a very few, would come to faith in Christ. And to him, it's worth it. It's a good investment. It's as if Paul were saying, Christ has set me, to fr- set me free to love all men with the ministry of the gospel, and so I'm going to love like crazy. I'm not going to stay in Jerusalem. What are you guys doing there? Come on, we got a world to reach. we got people to love and people to speak to, and they're not going to listen to you if you don't love them. So let's get out and love the world for Jesus' sake. Even if it costs me my life, Do you see, beloved, Paul was free. He was free to lay down his life for all men. He was free to be a slave to all men. And that's what Christian liberty is mostly about. It's not about, can I go to the movies? It's not about, can I wear these clothes? It's not about, can I buy a nice car or a big house and eat fancy food at at big restaurants? Yes, there are principles here in chapter 8 that apply to those issues, but in Paul's mind, all this discussion about what's appropriate to eat and drink and do and don't do, all of that had to do with freedom to love and to serve one another and to serve the lost and to reach the world. And if he had to die in the midst of all of that, bring it on, bring it on. I notice he did all of this for the purpose, one purpose, but mentioned over and over and over again. Chapter 9, verse 12. Verse 12. If others share this right over you, do we have the right to... What what does he say? If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things. Why? So that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Verse 20, that I might win the Jews. Verse 20 again, that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. Verse 22 again, I become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. Verse 23, here we go. I do how many things? All things for the sake of the gospel. 
all things for the sake of the gospel. I judge in any given moment whether I should exercise my freedom or restrain my freedom based on this. Will it help me promote the gospel or will it hinder it? Would it help my ministry of the word to these people or will it hinder it? I think it's perfectly appropriate, by the way. Uh, Our young people have an, an evangelism ministry that goes downtown and shares the gospel with people. You know what it's called? 4SG, for the sake of the gospel. That's why they're down there every other week. It's right on target. And so what is Christian liberty? As Paul understood it, the liberty that Christ purchased for him on the cross was not a liberty to indulge his fleshly impulses and desires it was a free freedom to be the slave of all men. It was freedom to love like crazy, regardless of whether the person is black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whether he's Protestant or Catholic or Muslim or Hindu or atheist, whether he's gay or straight, male or female or whatever the person claims to be. He's going to love them. He's going to serve them. It's about exercising our blood-bought right to lay down our privileges and our prejudices and our preferences, lay it all aside in order to love people where they are so that they might win some to Christ. Christian liberty is all about the freedom to bring the gospel to men and women wherever they come from. It's not about fleshly indulgences. And so, as Brent read earlier today, In Galatians chapter 5, let me just remind you, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, yes. Only do not turn your freedom. Do not turn your freedom. Do not twist your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Love your neighbor, as yourself. Love gives to the other person whatever they need that we have simply because God wants us to. In Christ, God has freed us to love like crazy, to love everybody everywhere in practical ways. That's what Christian liberty is really all about. That's what Christian liberty is really all about. Are we living like that? Do we exercise our freedom to engage in redemptive conversations with neighbors and people different than ourselves so that we can learn how to serve them? Or do we go home, pull up the drawbridge, never say a word to anybody? Speaking to myself here too. When was the last time we spontaneously went out of our way to meet someone's needs simply out of love for Christ? Are there people that you pass every day in the office, in the neighborhood, that you avoid simply because they're different race or different religion? How will we ever win them to Christ if we never take the opportunity to show them what Jesus is like? And someone will say, well, will it mean taking risks? Yes. Will it mean breaking my personal comfort bubble? Yes. Will it cost me money? Sometimes. Will it interrupt my schedule? Every time. 
every time. Just know that. But it's worth it because we don't live for ourselves anymore. Our joy is to live for Christ. We live for Christ, and nothing brings us greater joy than pleasing him. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you experience that? There's no life like the obedient life. There's no life like a a life lived taking risks and identifying ourselves with the shame of the cross. There's no joy like knowing that God was just glorified in your actions whether they were received well or not. Beloved, here's the point. In Christ, God has given us the freedom to be slaves of all men that we might win some to Christ through unhindered love. Oh, may we be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning that the Lord Jesus is the only one who did this perfectly. And we are so easily captivated by the things of this life. Lord, even I confess in my own life, I so, can be so easily distracted by pastoral ministry that I forget that I'm called to love people, no matter who they are or where they're from, and to do it for the sake of the gospel, to do it so that they might see what Jesus is like, what the gospel is like, what God is like. We bear your image, Father, but oh, sometimes we, <laughs> we work so hard at hiding it. Help us, Father, rather to set your glory on display in our lives so that those around us who need to know the cross of Christ will see it in its blazing glory in our lives and desire to know the one that by your grace we have come to know. May you be glorified in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.